As a young corporate lion firmly planted in the upper ranks of a powerful advertising firm, I was assured my place in the social elite of my hometown, Madison, Wisconsin. I dined with clients at the posh restaurant Magnus on East Wilson Street, schmoozed with state legislators at the Frosty Ball in the Capitol Rotunda, and took girlfriends for romantic excursions on my own yacht, the moneymaker, anchored in the Memorial Union. I received a Friend of the Hispanic Community Award for my philanthropic work and made the year-end list of Madison Magazine's 25 Most Influential People. It came as quite a shock then when my firm transferred me to Miami, Florida. What little I knew about the city was culled from sensational Hollywood blockbusters, and when I hailed a cab at Miami International, I half expected the driver to speak to me with Al Pacino's faux Cuban accent. My career flourished in Miami's cosmopolitan marketplace, but my social life floundered amid the intimidating strobe lights of the club scene. I was accustomed to spending quiet evenings drinking at the Madison Club or the Blue Marlin, and when my co-workers dragged me to trendy South Beach discotheques, I felt like I was walking into the alien cantina from Star Wars, bounty hunters with multiple arms and tentacles lurking in the shadows, waiting to vaporize me. Blocked in by a sea of bodies writhing arrhythmically as the steady pulse of a kick drum shook my intestines, I experienced severe panic attacks and stumbled out onto the sidewalk, collapsing on carpets of velvet and faux animal skin, models in stiletto heels disdainfully stepping over my crumpled body. Despite my familiarity with Scarface, I was also unprepared for the frequent cocaine use at social gatherings. When my boss or business partner offered me a line from a gold tray, I was never sure of the proper etiquette. For instance, what is the preferred denomination of currency for snorting cocaine? Is it 20 too pedestrian? 100 too flashy? I avoided the problem by using a drinking straw, but as I was naturally predisposed to nosebleeds, I gave up the drug after ruining too many Turkish rugs and Prada skirts. I had always considered myself well-cultured, but when I conversed with potential clients at Miami Beach Gallery openings, it was often difficult for me to follow the conversation. They would reference things like fauvism, op art, and neoconceptualism, and when I discreetly looked up these words in a small pocket dictionary, they were conspicuously absent. I took to lugging the unabridged Oxford English Dictionary with me to all social functions, but its formidable size made pouring my own cocktails almost impossible. My biggest problem, however, was overhauling my wardrobe, which previously consisted of conservative wool business attire and full-body sweatsuits. My coworkers took me shopping and selected European designer dress shirts and vintage paisley jackets, but by increasing my clothing options, my troubles were only amplified. I would attempt to dress myself for a night on the town and agonize for hours over the proper slacks to wear with a sharkskin jacket and whether or not to place a peacock feather in my bowler's cap. I would apply a hint of mascara to my eyelashes, self-consciously wipe it off after looking in the mirror, and then reapply it, beginning the vicious cycle anew. I would try hundreds of combinations of shoes, slacks, denim jeans, ruffled shirts, Nehru jackets, 
sunglasses, scarves, and feather boas until I collapsed on the floor, panting, buried beneath an avalanche of faux leather and rayon. I would then slide on a comfortable pair of sweatpants, crawl into bed, and watch a rerun of the Drew Carey show, falling fast asleep after the first commercial break. There's no doubt about it. Fashion is exhausting. size of Madison, Wisconsin, roughly 200,000 people, it doesn't take much to become a local celebrity. This Saito elite circle includes the owners of Brothers Main Appliances, a professional juggler called the Truly Remarkable Loon, and the orange jumpsuit-clad homeless guy who plays piccolo outside the library mall. As the weatherman for NBC15, I myself occupy the outskirts of regional fame and fortune and because of this, I'm often invited to make public appearances. This past June, I served as a celebrity cashier at the world's largest Bratfest, held in the parking lot of the Hilldale Mall on Madison's west side. Each year, the Bratfest breaks its own world record, and in my inaugural year, we sold 189,432, all of them cooked on a 53,000-pound grill that unfolded from a semi-trailer. In between collecting dollar bills and dispensing change, I'd pose for photographs in front of the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, a hulking sausage on wheels that defies both aesthetics and aerodynamics. Besides the Bratfest, I've been an auctioneer for the Henry Vilas Zoo Benefit, I've thrown the first pitch for Madison's semi-pro baseball team, the Mallards, and I've performed Jimi Hendrix's version of the National Anthem for a reenactment of Woodstock organized by public middle school teachers. As bizarre as channeling the voodoo spirit of Hendrix amid bleachers of distracted 7th graders is, it pales in comparison to my latest assignment, judging the Miss Teen Dairy pageant. When most people think of beauty pageants, they probably imagine perky, bubbly 19-year-olds in swimsuits or formal wear, making inarticulate speeches supporting animal rights or the environment. I had never seen a beauty pageant before, but that was my general impression. I tried approaching the pageant with an open mind, but when I arrived to find a cattle show finishing up on the very stage where the contestants were to walk, I developed a bad premonition about the evening's proceedings. The pageant was held at the Dane County Expo, an exhibition hall on Madison's east side neighboring the Coliseum, a roughshod sports arena used for the ice capades and concerts by aging rock stars. When I walked to the judges' table, I was greeted by the pageant's organizer, a sturdy, friendly man who called himself Bafo. Bafo launched the pageant several years ago to compete with Iowa and Minnesota's Dairy Princess programs, 
where every participant must belong to a family active in milk production. Wisconsin already had something called Alice in Dairyland, a full-time public relations job supporting dairy farmers, but Bafo was more interested in enticing the masses than educating them, hoping Miss Teen Dairy would inject some glamour into the drab, mechanical facade of the dairy industry. I received my scorecard and took note of the various attributes I would be judging. Physical fitness, poise, posture, and cheerfulness were among the contest's deciding factors. In addition, there was a talent section, and when I asked Abafo what percentage this comprised of the final score, he flipped through his notes to find the answer. 5%, he said. My fellow judges soon arrived, and it became immediately apparent that I represented the youth demographic, as they were all over the age of 50. I'm not sure why any of us were chosen for the panel, since none of us seemed to be arbiters of the feminine physique. The other judges were a city alderman, the owner of a steakhouse, a TV spokesman for a car dealership, and a former UW basketball player. The basketball player mentioned he had once judged a wet t-shirt contest at a fraternity house on Langdon Street, and I wondered if he was making small talk or justifying his inclusion on the panel. The opening segment of the pageant was a meet-and-greet, where we engaged the contestants in a minute or so of friendly banter. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be judging the responses or not, but I wrote them down anyway, just in case. My scorecard was littered with scribbled phrases like favorite animal is a snow leopard and had a crush on Jonathan Taylor Thomas. When it was my turn to ask the girls a question, I said, what do you think of ethanol fuel as an alternative to petroleum? The confused girl batted her eyes and froze at the microphone stand, and Bafo took me aside. Listen, son, he said, not all of these girls grew up on a dairy farm. Try making your questions a little less industry-specific. My next question was, do you like cheese, and if so, why? The girl, a high school senior from Cheboygan, was ardently pro-cheese. After the 20 or so Bambi-eyed competitors introduced themselves, we moved on to the talent portion of the pageant. Most of the girls sang sappy, overly emotive show tunes or pop songs, and I was relieved when a contestant from Appleton played a Beethoven sonata on violin, offering me a respite from saccharine madness. She never nailed the piece's diminished runs, but I gave her the highest score possible for avoiding the works of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Celine Dion. The next segment was the pageant's main draw, the swimsuit competition, and I became very uncomfortable as my fellow judges ogled the teenage girls strutting across the stage, the distinctive smell of livestock still left over from the cattle show. A casual glance at a Victoria's Secret catalog is one thing, but analyzing the curves of prep school vestal virgins with braces seemed wrong and possibly illegal. I became so disgusted with myself that assigning the girls a score was next to impossible. I glanced at the notes of the steakhouse owner and saw the words killer abs and smoking body written down for a junior from Waukesha who could have been his granddaughter. After the flesh parade was over, the 20 contestants retreated behind a curtain and I was told to hand in my score sheet. 
I hurriedly assigned the girls scores at random, and when I arbitrarily gave a girl from Kenosha a 2 for physical fitness, I cringed at my brutality and made it up to her with a 10 for posture. The results were tabulated, and the top five contestants were corralled for a final speech in which they articulated their future plans as Miss Teen Dairy. My scorecard contained abbreviated notes such as butter education and cow tipping prevention, but when the speeches were over, I could barely remember what anyone had said. In the end, hopefully without my influence, a slim, chipper 18-year-old from Oconomowoc was crowned Miss Teen Dairy, and a farm girl from Platteville was named alternate Miss Teen Dairy, which came with an equal share of responsibilities, but a smaller scholarship. The sparse crowd, mostly parents of the contestants, applauded and whistled, and the master of ceremonies told everyone to look for the girls at the upcoming U.S. Cheese Championships in Milwaukee and the Wisconsin Aquaculture Conference in Green Bay. As I packed up my things, the 20 bikini-clad girls descended upon the judges to thank us for our time. The other judges gave them bear hugs and quick pecks on the cheek, but I merely offered a limp handshake and tried to avoid eye contact. I was paranoid that Dane County detectives had concocted the pageant as part of some elaborate sting for sexual predators. As I slipped out of the expo center, I noticed a tiny five-year-old girl staring wide-eyed at the adolescent dairy queens with matching crowns and sashes. When I grow up, I want to be Miss Teen Dairy, she said to her mother. The mother stared at the life-size likeness of last year's Miss Teen Dairy, carved in butter, and as she contemplated her pride and joy immortalized in margarine, her face adopted a pained expression. A passing janitor helped himself to some of Miss Teen Dairy's nose and buttered a sweet roll, savoring the fruits of his plastic surgery. The real-life dairy incumbent saw the statue and remarked she'd always wanted a nose job. Unable to bear the circus any longer, I walked outside, only to find my car parked in by a trailer packed with prize-winning cattle. Oh, the pageantry. Dating a supermodel is the ultimate fantasy, a wet dream of spontaneous rendezvous in tropical islands and rum colas in exotic jungle hideaways. What these romantic illusions fail to acknowledge, however, are the myriad compatibility issues between an internationally famous fashion diva and a trucker or gas station attendant. While men flip through Maxim magazine and ogle nubile movie starlets in stilettos and lace garters, they're probably not thinking of the awkwardness of accompanying their girlfriend to movie premieres and private soirees, surrounded by blonde, chiseled Adonises far more sophisticated, charming, and well-endowed than they are. 
It also likely doesn't occur to them that their knowledge of NASCAR racing and Star Wars trivia is only going to get them through so many conversations with Italian fashion designers and media moguls. I myself was raised in a household without television or entertainment magazines, so for many years my experience with idealized female beauty was limited to the grainy wood pulp images of department store underwear models in the Sunday newspaper. My first exposure to nudity was at my Catholic grade school when a classmate snuck in a playboy disguised with a cover ripped from Boy's Life, a Boy Scout magazine. We were discovered by a teacher and placed in lunchtime detention for two weeks, and this suggested to me that observing female nakedness was inherently evil and could lead to imprisonment. For high school, I attended Madison West, a liberal public school where I was exposed both to progressive views on gender equity and the confusing side effects of my suddenly raging hormones. As I worked on an in-class essay on the objectification of women by the media, I couldn't help but be distracted by the subtle curves beneath my female classmates' Christmas sweaters. Still, there was a distinctly Midwestern innocence to those heavy wool sweaters, a sort of ideological barrier to lechery and misogyny, despite my impure thoughts, I was confident I would mature into a decent, forward-thinking human being, unconcerned with breast or waist size, a sensitive 21st century male. Then I moved to Miami, where I dated a fashion model. We were introduced by a mutual friend at a jazz club where I was performing, and although I can't be certain why she found me attractive, I attribute it to a particularly sensuous guitar solo I played on My Funny Valentine. Also, I think she was high on ecstasy. Her name was Oilda, and she was originally from Valladolid, Spain. She wasn't an international superstar, but had a contract with a respected modeling agency and seemed to be doing well. Her bedroom resembled that of a hormone-addled 14-year-old boy with cut-out pictures of scantily clad women plastered to the walls and ceiling. On closer inspection, I discerned that every single picture was of her. In the short month we were together, I received a crash course on the pratfalls of dating someone without common goals, mutual interests, or compatible personality traits. I accompanied Oilda to one photo shoot for L'Oreal Concentrated Color Mousse, and I felt like I was walking into an elaborate, real-life Where's Waldo, a skinny, bespectacled nerd with a dopey grin, lost in the sea of curvaceous, toned bodies, frozen in bizarre poses. Find the girl suggestively straddling a garden hose, the list at the back of the book would say. Check. Find the girl wearing nothing but plastic wrap. Check. All I needed was a walking cane and a red and white striped shirt that was set. It's possible that my girlfriend's co-workers were articulate conversationalists with a thorough knowledge of politics and the arts, but I never found out because they refused to speak to me. I think they assumed I was Oilda's personal manservant or limo driver since they handed me their half-finished Manhattans from the complimentary cocktail bar. It's also possible they were told this by Oilda herself, as she once introduced me as a parking valet to a handsome television actor outside the Eden Rock Hotel. 
I had never driven a stick shift before, so getting his Bentley out of the driveway was quite a chore. Inevitably, Awilda broke up with me, and though I was cut off from my supply of free cocktails, I handled the split in stride. I was glad to leave the sequin-studded glamour of the fashion industry for the familiar comforts of dive bars and cheap outdoor weddings, the jazz scene's equivalent of a blue-collar living. The night she left me, I dreamed of meeting a slightly overweight pre-med student with a love for John Coltrane's Giant Steps and Fellini's Eight and a Half, and I woke up feeling cleansed and contented. I got out of bed and opened the blinds, and as I gazed out of my bedroom window, I was greeted by an unexpected, shocking sight. On a billboard, directly across the street, was Awilda, 15 feet tall, in sheer lace lingerie. I rubbed my eyes, thinking it must be some post-traumatic mirage, but Awilda remained poised above US-1, her impish smile and impossibly long legs seducing the morning traffic. After taking a cold shower and therapeutically flossing my teeth, I tried practicing my harmonic minor scales for my jazz gig that evening, but I couldn't concentrate. Every time I looked up from the fretboard of my guitar, I was confronted with my larger-than-life ex-girlfriend, the sun's rays perfectly accenting her regal cheekbones and lush, pouting lips. Even when I closed the blinds, her solicitous expression and sleek, bare legs were etched in the forefront of my consciousness, and I forgot the chord progressions to easy standards like Autumn Leaves and Take the A-Train. My show that night was a disaster, a train wreck of flubbed melodies, missed cues, and lackluster solos. Luckily, the Abercrombie and Fitch college crowd wasn't paying attention to the band, but the other musicians were furious. The bass player asked me if I was high on smack, and he made me roll up my sleeves to inspect for track marks. The drummer said, what do you think this is, open mic night, and glared at me with vengeful eyes as he counted off the next song. After the first set, I drank a pitcher of Berghoff and settled down somewhat, but when the bassist played the opening notes to My Funny Valentine, I excused myself and stepped into the bathroom, hiding in the stall until the song was over. The billboard cast a funereal pall over the following weeks, insinuating itself into the spaces between my thoughts. I befriended a bright, sweet-natured owner of a Thai organic grocery named Sydney and took her back to my apartment, but as we fumbled with each other's zippers on my bed, I became distracted by Awilda, glaring disapprovingly from across the street. She's not as pretty as me, Awilda said, her ruffled bodice illuminated by a pale street lamp. Her skin doesn't feel like oriental silk, and her hair doesn't smell of ripe strawberries. I ran my hand across Sydney's thighs and pressed my nose against her hair, inhaling deeply. Awilda was right. She didn't smell like strawberries. So what, I countered. She likes the modern jazz quartet and Bertolucci movies. You spent the final hour of Last Tango in Paris ordering bath mats from Pier 1 on your cell phone. Sydney removed her hand from my pants and said, Who are you talking to? Well, no one, I said, 
refocusing my concentration on her zipper. After successfully removing a good portion of our clothes, I looked away from Sydney's heaving chest to find Oilda rolling her eyes, clearly unimpressed. She's only an A cup, and she obviously never works on her upper thighs and abdomen, she said. Frankly, without liposuction, she's a lost cause. I glanced at Sydney's body and located several rolls of excess fat on her legs and stomach, something I hadn't noticed before. Who cares, I said. You don't need washboard abs to be beautiful. Besides, she listens to NPR and reads The Economist and McSweeney's quarterly concern. What more could I possibly ask for? Sydney removed my hand from her bra strap and said, Are you trying to talk dirty or something? Because if you are, you're doing a terrible job. I apologized and went back to work removing her bra, but as I fumbled with the clasp, Oilda's shadowed face taunted me, laughing at my futile attempts. Admit it, she sneered. You want me. You want my hourglass figure, my smooth cocoa butter complexion, my full, ripened lips. Personality is just a cover story, so you don't feel so superficial, so shallow. You're not some sensitive, liberated romantic. You're a base, depraved animal like everyone else. So come and get it, sugar. I'm waiting for the slaughter. I leapt from the bed and hurriedly collected my clothes from the floor. I'm sorry, I said to Sydney, who looked more perplexed than ever, but there's something I have to do. After sliding back into my jeans, I helped Sydney button her loose-knit cashmere sweater in the interest of time presented her with her purse and umbrella, escorting her to her car with my arm around her waist at the clipped pace of a speedwalker. After she angrily drove away, I returned to my room and commenced my preparatory work, smoothing the lapped joints of my wallpaper with fine sandpaper, filling the cracks with patching plaster, and brushing the walls with a solution of two pounds of zinc sulfate mixed with one gallon of water. I made some calculations with a tape measure and wrote them on my hand as I left my apartment, dodging traffic as I crossed the street. I climbed the scaffolding to the billboard and tore Oilda into thin, even strips matching my measurements, neatly folding the shaved pieces on the pavement below. I carried her dismembered body back to my bedroom and began the meticulous process of brushing premixed paste on her vinyl underside and applying her to the wall thin panels connected with a wire lap joint. As I caressed her body with my smoothing brush and wallpaper roller, my memory was filled with the glycerin soap softness of her skin and the unmistakable fragrance of her strawberry shampoo. I trimmed the edges, and the masterpiece was complete. A collision of seductive Art Nouveau contours and Cezanne sensuousness. No longer forced to share her beauty with passing traffic, panhandlers, the outside world melts away until there is nothing but the infinite expanse of her sleek vinyl legs across four walls and one boarded up window, her airbrushed perfection stretching limitless, forever contained in our private sanctuary. As I lie tied to the bedpost, she sings her siren song for only me. In the 
against mine Your naked belly 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 